Oh God, I pray that you would make us desperate for you. Lord, I pray that you would use anything and anyone to show our great need for you. Lord, that you would even use this passage. Lord, I pray that you would be our teacher through your spirit. Give us understanding. Give us insight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Right before Christmas, my family and I had uh, the opportunity to experience the Christmas uh, Sullivan Express. I know many of you were able to do this as well, or you've done it in the past. It was a really fun time. This place is like decked out all things Christmas. But the main activity was you got on this choo-choo train, and it took you to the North Pole. And you got to see various fun things along the way. Well, my youngest, named Milo, he's two years old, he is obsessed with all things uh, trains. He's just obsessed with choo-choo trains. And we were trying to kind of prepare him, explain what a choo-choo train ride is like, just to make sure he had the right expectations. But we quickly found out that's impossible to explain to a two-year-old what that concept is like. But we finally get there, and it's our turn to go on the choo-choo train, and Milo finally sees it. He sees the choo-choo train. And I don't know if it was too cold outside or if he was stunned in amazement, but there was like no response from his face. He's just like staring at it, like no reaction. It was so unlike what what we were anticipating his reaction uh, to be. And he quickly, you know, enjoyed it as we got on the train. But that experience and really kind of studying this passage reminded me just how powerful expectations are. In many ways, the way that we experience life is governed and even shaped by our expectations. Our expectations can even prepare the way for how we experience life and even our emotions. And we all know just how important expectations are because of the painful sting of disappointment. Disappointment is a reality for us all. And to be disappointed with a choo-choo train ride is one thing. But what happens when you feel disappointed by God? What happens when your expectations of God and how he ought to work in your life are different than what you're currently experiencing? What do you do when your expectations of how your life should be are very different than the life that you have? What do you do? Like I said, disappointment is a reality for us all. It's inescapable. And yet one of the most important and profound markers of maturity is how one deals with disappointment. That's actually one of the things I want us to see uh, in this passage this morning, really through the example of Hannah, is that the way that we handle and respond to disappointment is always linked to our expectations of God, what we expect him to do, what we expect from him. As we kicked off last week this study in 1 Samuel that we're going to be in for several, several months, I uh, just gave an overview of the book. I challenge us not to miss the forest for the trees as we now go into the specifics of these verses and chapters. Last week, we looked at the historical background. We looked at some key themes. But we also learned that chronologically, uh, the book of Judges comes right before 1 Samuel. In many ways, the issues that we find in the book of Judges kind of sets up for the potential solution that's found in 1 Samuel. Uh, Again, a great summary of what's happening in 1 Samuel among God's people can be found in the very last verse of Judges, which says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
All right, that is the condition of God's people as we move into 1 Samuel. Uh, the, the people of God, they're in a, a season of despair and even chaos because they're leaderless. Four times in the book of Judges, it's emphatically said there was no king, there was no king, there was no king. And they're leaderless really because they rejected God as their king. But without a leader, uh, they're experiencing all kinds of issues. So as we move into 1 Samuel chapter 1, we're going to look at these first 18 verses today. I want to move through this passage by looking at four main scenes, four main scenes. These scenes or headings will really serve as hooks that we can kind of hang various truths and applications on as we kind of move through this passage. Okay, so here's the first scene in uh, really verses 1 through 3. I'm going to title this, A Barren Woman in a Barren Land. A Barren Woman in a Barren Land. Chapter 1 opens up, and as we saw this last week, but it describes this ordinary and obscure man named Elkanah. Elkanah and, and kind of where he's from, kind of his, his family of origin. But we quickly learn in chapter 1 and even much of chapter 2 that this is not really about Elkanah. This is about his first wife, Hannah. Elkanah, yes, has two wives, Elkanah and Penina. Penina, uh, her name actually means fruitful. And we quickly learn in these first couple of verses that Penina has children. We're going to learn that she has actually many children. But Hannah, at the end of verse 2, has no children. Hannah is barren. Hannah is experiencing uh, the very worst thing that could happen to an Israelite woman during this time. This is a nightmare for her to walk through and for her to live with. As we move through chapter 1, it is almost shocking the amount of detail that's contained here related to Hannah's infertility. The, the, the heartache and the disappointment and the desperation that's portrayed here with amazing specificity is unbelievable. But one of the things that we need to understand is that this chapter is not just about something tragic that happened to this obscure woman personally or privately. It's not just about one woman's dilemma. See, Hannah is a symbol of what was happening in the nation of Israel during this time. That Hannah's barrenness represents Israel's barrenness. That in the same way that Hannah was yearning and longing for one to come from her womb, so too the nation of Israel was longing for one to come to rule as king. That yes, Hannah is lifeless physically inside her womb, but so too Israel is lifeless spiritually in leadership. Now that's not a stretch, that's not a leap that I'm making here, because as we recall, 1 Samuel is historical narrative. That these are true, real events happening in the past, but it's being told in story form. And just like most stories, there's a bit of foreshadowing in really good stories, and we see that in verse 3. Notice in verse 3, Elkanah is faithfully leading his family. He's demonstrating good, godly leadership in the home, where year after year, he brings his family to worship, to make appropriate sacrifices at a place called Shiloh. A Shiloh was about 15 miles from Elkanah's home, about a two-day's journey, and Shiloh is a very significant place for God's people, especially during this time. It was at Shiloh, not even two centuries before Elkanah, that Joshua came and placed the tabernacle there. 
And it's still there during this time in 1 Samuel. This is the location where annual feasts and religious celebrations took place. So he's leading his family here. That's what verse 3 is telling us. But notice the small detail included at the end of verse 3. It seems almost irrelevant, almost random, especially if you're reading this maybe for the first time. You probably didn't notice this small detail, but if you've read this before or uh, uh, numerous times, one thing should stick out. It's the inclusion of Eli, the the high priest during this time, the the spiritual leader of the nation, and his, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, this is not random. We know that these sons are wicked. They are immoral. They're called worthless. In chapter 2, Eli fails to fully kind of correct and discipline them. And and this is to kind of tip off kind of a foreshadow, a key theme throughout 1 Samuel, because this is what the leadership looked like in the nation of Israel during this time. You've got these wicked, immoral sons and a father who fails to correct them. And I think that the author here is including this in verse 3 right off the bat to to show us, hey, this is a key theme in 1 Samuel. There is a leadership crisis and a void in leadership, but it's also included here to connect Hannah's lack of physical life in her womb with Israel's lack of spiritual life in leadership. They're side by side for a particular purpose. See, like Hannah, God's people are desiring that promise that was made all the way back in Genesis 3.15. It's promise of one to come that will make things all right again. This promise that was echoed in each generation. It was made, of course, to to Abraham, the the blessing of a leader that would come and, and lead God's people. But they don't have that right now. The promise is unfulfilled. They're they're living with this sense of disappointment and and hopelessness, longing for a new day, just like Hannah. Now, Hannah, I think her painful disappointment, as we see in chapter 1, has a, a theological issue to it. As we'll see, Hannah was a committed worshiper and follower of Yahweh, of God. So she knew the creation mandate in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. She likely knew the promise made in Exodus 23, verse 26, that there would be no more miscarriages or barren women that the Lord God would give to them this promised land. And yet, here she is. She's barren. She is carrying a sense of exclusion from the purposes of God's people. And we have to understand this, right or wrong, during this time in the ancient Near East, infertility was often linked to divine curse in their minds. And fertility was linked to divine blessing. And so for Hannah here, she's wondering, where is the blessing, God? Why aren't you working in my life here? This desire for a child, this is a good desire to have. So so why isn't it happening? See, we can see here in Hannah, her expectations of God We're not matching up with her experience. And so she's feeling the the weight of this pain and this disappointment. We need to be reminded, though, that Hannah is not alone. Uh, Hannah's not the only woman in the Bible who struggled with infertility. There's actually a long list of women even before Hannah. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. And yet God opened up her womb, gave birth to Isaac. 
Isaac's wife, Rebecca, Genesis 25, struggled to have children. You've got Jacob's wife, Rachel, who was barren for 14 years and then God worked. Even around this time, Samson's mother struggled with infertility. So we see this long list of women who also struggled, and Hannah almost certainly knew of these stories, knew the power of God. And we as readers of the Bible, as we're reading these first couple of verses, we know these examples. We know even more examples throughout the scriptures of God working miraculously in this area. And so even as we're reading, we probably have this question that's kind of echoing in our minds and our hearts. We're, we're wondering, God, will you do it again? God, God will, you, will you do the impossible? Will you do it for Hannah? And as we're asking that question, we should also be asking another question. We should also be wondering, God, will you do it for Israel? God, will, will you bring about the promised one? Will you bring about the blessing? Will you, will you bring forth a leader that this nation desperately needs? See, what's so striking as you go on to read 1 Samuel, even 2 Samuel, it's filled with kings and prophets and judges and priests who do amazing things for God. It's kind of the who's who of Israel's history. It's the, it's the big leaders. It's the famous, the prominent, the powerful. And yet it opens up here with just some obscure nobodies. Like they're, they're ordinary people. They're, they're weak. They're, they're barren. And yet we wonder could God do something with them? Could God use a people like this for his eternal purposes? And it makes us wonder, could God use someone like me, someone like you? So that's scene one, a barren woman in a barren land. Moving on to scene two, though, in verses four through eight, we see a difficult home life for Hannah. Hannah is dealing with challenges from just about every angle. Uh, for starters, her husband, who is kind, who seems to be a good leader, who provides for his family, but she has to share him with another woman. Penina is the other wife. So he has two wives, and uh, just a little bit of a, a side sermon here. Scripture is not as direct in condemning polygamy as much as we might want Scripture to do, uh, but in every occurrence... What we see here is whenever there's multiple wives going on, it's always dysfunctional. There are always issues there. There's always sin in just about every occurrence. And you think about that and you compare it to, to Genesis 2 and, and God instituting marriage for the first time. And it's one man, it's one woman, it's Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and two Eves, right? And we see this beautiful picture of this is God's intention of marriage. You kind of compare them side by side throughout Scripture, and it's obvious God's intention for marriage is one man, one woman. But this picture here we have in verses 4 through 8, this is not a happy family. This is a challenge for Hannah. In fact, the, the curtain gets pulled back in verses 4 through 8, and we see some challenging and difficult dynamics the verses here paint a, a, a scene. It's, it's a dinner scene here. Remember, they're at Shiloh. They've made the appropriate sacrifices to the Lord, so now they feast. Now they have this, this amazing meal. But look at what happens. Verse 4, Elkanah provides the distribution of food, starts with Penina, and, and kind of feeds her and, 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 and gives her and all her children a portion of the food. 
And you get this picture of just fruitfulness. It's, it's very bountiful. All this food, all these children, and Penina. But then verse 5, it heightens the tension here. Because then Elkanah gives a double portion to Hannah. And it says that he did this because he loved her, even though God had closed her womb. Now, double portion doesn't mean double the amount of food. That would probably be an insult to most women. But this means the best cuts. This is the best meat. The best portion is given to her because he loved her. Verse 6 tells us that Penina, who's described as the rival of Hannah, used Hannah's pain of infertility to provoke and irritate her. This was done year after year after year. Verse 7 specifically says that as often as Hannah went up to the house of the Lord to pray and worship, Penina would taunt her. This is calculated cruelty here. This is not a happy situation for Hannah. So as a result, Hannah's not eating. She is deeply, deeply sorrowful. Now we can all imagine this scene. Right, we, we can, we can kind of picture the, the, the challenging dynamics. You've got this tension-filled family who makes their way to worship. They did this every single year. And during the meal, during the, the kind of feast here, Elkanah distributes the food here. And Penina notices once again that her husband is favoring Hannah. That probably obviously frustrated her, hurt her. And we can almost imagine... Penina saying to her husband, I see the way that you look at her. I know that you love her more than me. I see the way that you favor Hannah. You, you give her the best of the meat. I know you love her more than me. And we can almost imagine even Penina turning to Hannah and saying to her, and you. We're, we're here celebrating God, giving thanks to God. What do you have to give thanks to God for? You don't have any children. You don't have any blessing to give thanks to the Lord. God himself has closed your womb. God has forgotten you. What are you even doing here? Oh, and by the way, pass the potatoes because I need to feed all my children. See, we can imagine the, the challenging dynamics in this family, and it happened year after year after year. Verse 8, verse eight, Hannah is so sorrowful, she's not eating. She's weeping continually that Elkanah, bless his heart, he's trying to console his wife, but he makes the mistake, just like many of us do, husbands, where we try to fix the situation before first understanding the pain and the disappointment, right? He says, why are you weeping and not eating? Why is your heart so sad? And he basically says, am I not enough for you? Right, husbands, maybe tuck this in the back of your mind. When our wives are crying, when they're upset about something, the right move is never to say, but you have me, <laughs> right? Like, thank the Lord for me. You got this trophy husband, right? Look how great I am. Not a good move. Not a good move at all. Shows that Elkanah doesn't fully understand her pain and her disappointment. Hannah has a rival who provokes her, a husband who pities her, but neither understand. So it closes scene two. Scene three, though, opens up in verse nine, and we see a turn. Pretty significant shift in verse nine with Hannah. In fact, I think verse nine and these following verses, they are so instructive because what we have here is Hannah's maturity on full display. I want you to see what's going on here. I want you to, to notice 
that instead of, of becoming paralyzed by her pain, instead of becoming a victim to her emotions, instead of sulking in her disappointment, verse 9 tells us she rose. She got up and she pursued the Lord. According to verse 10, we have to understand that she's, she's deeply distressed still. She, she's weeping bitterly, but it's in that condition that she prays from. See, she's not praying once the pain and the disappointment have dissipated. No, verse 15 even reminds us this is a woman troubled in spirit, and it's from that posture that she seeks the Lord. See, Hannah is bringing all of who she is into the presence of God. She's bringing her emotions under the jurisdiction of God Almighty. This is so informative for us. And we've we got to remind ourselves that Elkanah and Hannah, they, they had good theology. Verse 5 reminds us that they believed that it was God who closed her womb. Right, so their theology is right. But what is unfolding here, the problem here is that Hannah's emotions were lagging. They were behind her theology, and she needed time for, him, for her emotions to catch up. And can I just say that that's okay? Is it that that's okay to give ourselves permission for our emotions to catch up with our theology? That, that as long as our theology is driving how we live and not our emotions, it's okay to give our emotions time to catch up to what we know to be true about God. And it's because we're not machines. We're human beings, right? We have real feelings, real emotions. And while we might know all the right answers, while we might have the right theology, sometimes we just need time for our emotions to catch up. Hannah needed time. See, verse 8, she's weeping. Her heart is sad. Look, we need to give ourselves permission to be sad sometimes. Verse 10, she's weeping bitterly. She's distressed. She's in anguish. But what does she do? She seeks the Lord in prayer. I love this. She doesn't turn away from the Lord. She turns to the Lord. In verse 15, she pours out her soul in desperate prayer before the Lord. So I think the problem that many people experience is that they allow their emotions to drive everything. They're so emotionally driven that they just almost want to sit in what they feel. And so what results from that is that their feelings shape and determine reality. That they see life and their disappointment through the lens of their emotions rather than the lens of their theology. So their feelings dictate how to respond, not truth. But they know what they feel, but they're not being driven by who God is. That's not Hannah here. The, the conductor in Hannah's life is her theology. The, the caboose is her emotions. Now she's pouring her soul out to the Lord. I know that some of you know exactly what that's like. Like some of you are kind of reading Hannah's story here. You're getting to know Hannah. And you're like, I know what that's like. like. I've been there before. Some of you know exactly what it's like to bring your emotions under the jurisdiction and the domain of God in your theology. I, I could invite many of you to get up here on stage right now 
and give testimony of what it's like to walk through painful disappointment, painful sorrow, and to give testimony about God. That some of you, I know, you relate all too well with Hannah, where you have this desire to have a child, and for whatever reason, that desire is unfulfilled. That you, you know what that's like. Some of you have lost loved ones. You've lost babies. And you know what it's like to walk through painful disappointment. Some of you, your, your careers haven't turned out the way that you wanted them to turn out. Some of you have marriages that are nowhere and nothing what you dreamed of. There's a long list of people representing this room of shattered dream after shattered dream after shattered dream. And because I know a lot of your stories, I can invite many of you up here to share and give testimony. And a lot of our stories would sound the same. A lot of our stories would go something like this, where yes, this is where we've been. This is what we walk through, this type of suffering and pain. This is how we poured our hearts out to the Lord. But it's not that we prayed and our crying stopped. It's that we prayed and the tears came all the more. That a lot of us would share stories where, man, there was no quick solution. There was no easy fix. And I share that with us today because some of you haven't yet walked through something like that, but many of you will. That you're either in a storm or a storm is coming. And I just want to remind us that the example that we have with Hannah here, especially in verse 9 through 16, like this is so instructive for us to not run to bitterness and resentment towards the Lord, but not to fall into fatalism. But the path here is to demonstrate a desperate prayer life, to bring our emotions under what we know to be true about God. That, that some of us will walk through really difficult things, and it might be year after year after year after year with no easy fix. And yet Hannah demonstrates exactly what we are to do, that even in this state, she cries out to the Lord. She shows us that prayer is not a technique to master. It's a pouring out of the soul to the Lord. We get a snapshot of her prayer life. Look with me. She calls out to God as the Lord of hosts. That's a very specific title of God. What this means, she's naming God as the one who can act. That's what that means there, that he's one who has power to actually do something. But there's also something else going on in this prayer I want to point out. She's using almost identical language of God's people when they were going through uh, Pharaoh's rule, when they were enslaved to the Egyptians. It's almost identical. She says, look on the affliction of your servant. Remember and do not forget your servant. Where have we heard this before? Exodus chapter 3. So notice what Hannah's doing. Hannah is echoing the language of God's dealings with his people. The historic act of God saving his people from Pharaoh during the time of Exodus, during the time of Moses, Hannah is tying her problem into the identity of God's people, and she's begging God to do for her what he did for them years ago. And she's doing it out of humility, but she's essentially saying, God, it's time to act. God, it's time to intervene that you are the one who closed my womb. You're the only one that can open it. I trust in you. She's calling on the God of deliverance, the God of all power, the God of compassion to see her, to notice her, to hear her, and to work on behalf of her heart's desire. 
But I love this, though. She's rooting her prayer, and, and the confidence in her prayer is based on who God is, on what he's done in the past, on what he's like. Oh, that is the source of all powerful prayers, to root it in God, to root it in what he's done in the past. Not, not thin prayers, not cliche prayers, not robotic prayers, but, but this type of prayer where it's, it's heartfelt, it's faith-driven, it's truth-saturated, and it's one out of desperation, always rooted in God. And she essentially says to the Lord, if you grant this request of giving me a son, I will give him to you all the days of his life. More on that next week. But man, isn't this amazing? Like this is just such a, a, a fascinating scene that the Lord uses something so ordinary and mundane like family tension. He uses that, uses Penina to provoke her, to lead her into praying out of desperation. And the Lord, as we'll see, spoiler alert, honors that prayer and it leads to not only changing a nation, but changing a world. It's unbelievable. And I was just reflecting on, on Hannah's response and her prayer of desperation. And I think one of the main reasons why we don't pray like Hannah is because we often do not feel our need to pray. Our need to pray, our need to be desperate for the Lord is always there. But the struggle we have is we often numb our neediness for God with all kinds of other things, with busyness, with pride, with self-sufficiency, with comfort. I mean, fill in the blank, but it's always there. And the reason why desperation is a gift is because in those times of desperation, our hearts recognize our extreme neediness for God. And we pray out of that humble, hungry, helpless state. Desperation is a gift. Our pain and our sorrow unmask the thin ice beneath our feet. Desperation reveals for us what was true all along, but it was just hidden or suppressed, that we are way more needy than we care to admit. Desperation helps clarify what is true about us and our need for God's help, and I think it opens the door for a season of intense growth just like Hannah. I think desperation is a conduit, if you will, for God's power and his presence coming into our lives in deeper ways. And I want to challenge us this morning to not resist those seasons of desperation, to not even just tolerate them, but to cultivate them. Cultivate our desperate need for God. See, when you take a step back and you compare, maybe on the surface, Penina's life and Hannah's life, like just on the surface for a moment, you almost would say that Penina has everything an Israelite woman could ever wish or want or dream of. She's got this loving husband who cares for the family, who's leading the family in worship and provides for her. She's got all of these children. And then you've got Hannah, no children, really providing no value for the family. And she's just kind of wallowing. She's, she seems to be just crying all the time. She's deeply sad and, and all of these things. And you look at that, you're like, man, Penina has it all. Penina has the life that you'd want. But if you look closer here, it's Hannah who has the greatest gift. Hannah has the gift of desperation for the Lord. That Hannah is the one 
who's not only in tune with her neediness for God, but she's living out of that neediness for God. That yes, she's in pain, but she has God. So I want to ask you, if you're walking through a season right now of painful sorrow, are you cultivating that disappointment and that pain in order to grow having a desperate posture for the Lord, a hunger, a neediness for him? Or are you just trying to get through it? Are you just trying to survive? Or are you saying, God, use this season, use this pain, use this disappointment to create something in my heart, create a neediness for you? What's really sad about verse 3 is that the spiritual leader of the nation, Eli, He's the judge, he's the priest, and he's there, according to verse 9 and 12, completely misunderstands Hannah. He sees Hannah's mouth moving, but doesn't see or hear any words coming out of her lips. It's because she's praying in her heart, and so he just kind of assumes she's drunk. It's kind of a bizarre, like, jump. I mean, just at least from my lens, but this is likely the case because he's either so old at this point because of his, eye, his eyesight has gone bad, Maybe that's why he's misinterpreting things. But what's actually most likely the case is that praying out of desperation and neediness like this was so foreign, it was so rare during this time that he failed to recognize it for what it actually was. And so as a result, he gives a stinging rebuke. Hannah, though, reassures him. She's like, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord, verse 15. And then you get to verse 16, and there's another foreshadow. She's... Basically, just trying to convince Eli, the spiritual leader, I'm, I'm praying here. And she says, do not consider me a worthless woman. Now, that word worthless is going to show up again in chapter 2, verse 12, not about Hannah, but about Eli's own sons. They're going to be called, chapter 2, verse 12, worthless uh, sons. I think this is a foreshadow of God who will bring a future judgment upon Eli and his ministry because of his sons, he will say, your ministry is done. You will no longer lead, which makes a way for another to lead this nation, who ends up becoming uh, Hannah's son. So scene three ends, bizarre interaction with Eli, which is just indicative of the spiritual state of Israel. And we find Hannah, who has been taunted by her rival, misunderstood by her husband, misconstrued by her spiritual leader, but she has been heard by God. She has been heard by God, which takes us to the fourth and the final scene here. I'll be more brief with scene four, verses 17 and 18. We learn about a changed woman. After explaining herself to Eli, Eli then basically responds by blessing her. Says, hey, go in peace. And what he's doing here, he's not guaranteeing that her request will be made exactly what she wants. He's just guaranteeing that her request has been heard. He didn't have the authority or really the permission to guarantee her request. He is simply blessing her. Now notice the response of Hannah, verse 18. She went away, she ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is a picture of a changed woman, even though she does not know if her request has been answered by God the way that she wants it to. Now all she knows is that God has heard her prayer. But look, this is enough for her. Like that's enough that God has just heard her prayer. That after she 
expresses her need, gives it to the Lord, hands it to him, and that provides the change in her own heart, that she's been heard by God, she's been seen by God, that she knows that God is good and that God cares for her, and that is enough for her. She has her own 1 Peter 5 experience, if you will, where it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. She hasn't been exalted yet. We'll learn that next week. She's humbling herself, and she's experiencing the loving care of God, and that's enough for her. And that, my friends, should be enough for us. Like Hannah experienced, when we come to the end of ourselves, when we've exhausted our resources, it feels like we're all alone. And yet it's in that aloneness, that's where God often meets us. That God is attracted, if you will, to weakness. That God can't resist those who are humble and honest about how desperate they are for him, and God meets us in our moments of desperation. And he never, never wastes those moments. He often turns our adversity into a university, if you will, not to bring harm, but to build something deep within our souls. And that is why desperation is a gift. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so thankful for your sovereign work in our lives Lord, we're thankful that you are in control of all things and that because you care for us, because you have unlimited power, and because you are all wise, that we can trust in you. Lord, even when we walk through painful moments in life, painful disappointment, Lord, that you, even in those moments, use for our good and our growth to bring about something that only you can bring out. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to Lord, uh, follow the example of Hannah to be able to, to steward well these seasons of hardship that you would grow something within us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.